In the way of the briefest possible introduction, this is a lunch and learn I spontaneously presented to a company called Giftbit, formerly called Kind with Two Eyes, in Victoria, BC, in sometime in 2016. A couple things I have to point out. One, I am on the advisory board of this company and do have some amount of shares. And the second thing is, I make a lot of references to Hootsuite in here and the work I did with Hootsuite. I'm no longer an employee from, uh, of Hootsuite and was not at the time. So everything I share is purely anecdotal and does not reflect on the company, blah, blah, blah. And shit, oh, the other thing is, the audio jumps around quite a bit. It was recorded by one of the staff members with a quick edit. So it kind of jumps and segues rather rapidly, but you're smart, you'll stay with it, right? Uh, get yourself comfortable. And they did give me, oh, the last piece of disclosure, they did give me some uh, sushi lunch, which was on my rider. Enjoy. In 1995, I was living on the island of Guam and Jerry Garcia from the Grateful Dead died and I couldn't find out any of the details. And so I went to like a little candlelight vigil and we're standing in a little circle like deadheads do talking about it. And then these guys come up and, uh, and they had all the details. I'm like, how do you guys know that? Uh, and they're, and they're, they're Rahalis, they're off islanders. Right. And I'm like, how do you guys know all this? And they're, they're like, uh, we work for the newspaper. We have the internet. And I'm like, the internet. And they're like, it's like words and pictures and they come through phone lines onto your computer. I'm like, computers and at the time I was working at, as a club host at a private beach club for Japanese tourists there was no data entry or it was taking people on like little snorkeling tours and, and tours into the jungle to show them where like Japanese soldiers hid out during the war and stuff right so the internet was a brand new thing and like well the next day I went and took a class about the internet and there was like the 9600 baud modem and the and and the trumpet windsock and floppy disks and I boot up this thing I had no idea what the fuck I was doing and then I go to dead.net and it's downloading. I'm like, and then a brown tree snake bit into the power line and shut down power on, on the whole planet for three days. So I'd seen the future and it was ripped away from me. But then immediately, as soon as I got online, I was like, I want to make these web pages or whatever you call them. And so my first web page was about uh, the history of hemp in Japan. And, uh, but I didn't know the concept of making multiple pages. It was just like one long scroll. I'm like, why not? Why do you need pages? You know, I didn't, you know, load times, it turns out, it's the answer. But so I, I made these ridiculously long 10,000 word essays all on one page. And I ended up back in North America and realized that this internet thing was, was going to be a thing. This was 1995, 96. And so I met some guys who just started an ISP. And I realized that most startups, they start with business guy meets technical guy. And they napkin out an idea and they work really hard till three in the morning and their family lives on ramen and almost starves to death until they get to some product. But because they've decided to go into stealth mode or um, they just didn't think that they just think that you put out a thing and it magically happens. Um, they put out a product or they do put something out and no one can explain it because it's technical uh, shorthand. They don't really have realistic plan to go to market and make this into something that people want. So I realized I could hang out kind of in the middle between the suits and the geeks and kind of act as a Rosetta Stone because the suits and the geeks generally speak different languages. Mm -hmm. Geeks speak in acronyms and the suits say like shit like synergy and, and, you know, leverage and stuff. So if I hung out in the middle and then I could be the one that actually explained to the market why they should care about this shit that we're putting out for them, right? So that kind of became my little role in, in a cavalcade of companies, most recently with Hootsuite, 
were Ryan, CEO, and then there was the dev department, which was like six guys, and then there was the Dave department that was everything that wasn't dev was Dave. So I started all the departments, everything to do with um, marketing, branding, community, uh, support, the affiliate program, the app directory, the API and SDK, all of the HR, my legendary intern hiring practices. <clears throat> I'm the intern master. You can't spell internet without intern. And in four years, I had 63 interns from a dozen different countries, which leads me to, I also did all the translation and localization for Hootsuite. I don't know if you guys remember the Twitter world five years ago, but it was TweetDeck and Seismic and CoTweet and where are they all now? And Hootsuite, when we were like, we were way down, we were way down the list, right? So for those first times when we were 20 people in one room, like you guys are now, we weren't sure if we were going to win, right? And when... TweetDeck sold for $45 million, and I was like, oh, that's the end of Hootsuite. That's the end of Hootsuite. And we were like, should we have sold for $45 million? You know, that's only, what is this? There's a thousand of us. We could, like, coast for a year, probably. We could, like, take it easy. Glad we didn't sell. But um, so for all those different experiences, um, I have lots of things I can talk to you about. The way to sum this next step up, uh, you get a, a mouse, a magnifying glass, and a light source. And if you put those three things in the right order, you can make the mouse look like an elephant, which is what you want. If you put them in the wrong order, you burn the fucking poor little mouse to death, and it's a bad situation, right? So right now, right now you guys are a mouse, but you have to start looking like you're um, in the big leagues, right? And this is the kind of the fake it till you make it. Here's the things that immediately come to mind. One is amplify your user stories. Anything that you say about your own company and your own brand is completely discounted. Anything that anyone else says about your brand, even if they're completely unqualified to even comment on it, is a hundred times more valuable than anything you can say. So what you need to do is you need to foster experiences where other people can be put in this situation to say nice things about your brand and explain why your brand's important and why your product is important without you having to say it in your own language. This is going to do a couple of things. One, it's going to give you media assets that you can then repurpose to tell your story and, and help the prospective clients. But the other thing it's going to do is going to help you refine your vocabulary because you're going to learn the words that other people use to describe your product, which you can think tank this and consult this for a fortnight, and you're going to come up with totally wrong vocabulary and totally wrong uh, words. When I came on with Hootsuite, and there was the minimum viable product, um, they'd just gone from BrightKit to Hootsuite. Do you remember when it was called BrightKit? Anyone remember that? But it was professional Twitter client was the tagline, right? We quickly outgrew that. But then it started getting pigeonholed into really generic terms like social media management, which I didn't really care for. But then it started trying to get, you know, there'd be these esoteric ideas about social relationship manager. Well, what does that really mean, man? Do people say that? Like we need a new, you know, or it's a social CRM tool. It's a broadcast tool. No, no, no. Forget what you call it, man. Go out and listen to the, to, to the public and what do they call it, right? And people you know, would use terms like social media Swiss Army knife to describe our tool. Okay, how do we say that without saying Swiss Army knife? The vocabulary that people use to talk about our streams or the broadcasting or monitoring, what are these attributes that our tool has? And emphatically document this kind of stuff, the vocabulary and the, you know, the exact syntax and the way they refer to these things because it's going to make your copywriting so much easier down the road. Now, back to the first thing I said, which is gathering these media assets. And we talked about this about podcasting when we were hanging out, which is I used to do every podcast from anyone that would contact me through, uh, through Hootsuite. I would do heaps of these because 
it gave me an opportunity to answer the questions that I wanted people to ask me, right? And so again, like me putting out a podcast saying, hey, this is Dave from Hootsuite, you're really awesome, and you can monitor, and you can broadcast, and you know, that's not interesting, but having someone set me up with the questions, like, so there's this interesting situation that happened when Twitter and Facebook were blocked in Egypt, and you had some role in that. What happened there? Bam, all of a sudden I have an opportunity to share some interestingness and put a story behind it, and so, so there's all these little cultural funnels that come in. So it's no longer a tool where people think of in two-dimensional terms that you put a message in and you see what people are saying about your brand. All of a sudden, we're there. We're part of the revolution. We're here changing the world. We're here helping someone in, in Maui who has a small newspaper increase their little best of contest thing. You know, We're helping people actually meet business goals. But you can't say that yourself. You need someone to ask you that. And then you repurpose those assets. Early days, every Friday, I'd publish a news roundup on the Hootsuite blog. And in there, I would co-mingle all, all the coverage, whether it was Mashable uh, or Wall Street Journal or Bob's blog or Bob's podcast. I'd put them all in there, right? And so then other people would see like, oh, here I am, a, a mid-level blog. If I cover Hootsuite, Hootsuite's going to give me this extra juice by putting them in their blog. They're going to retweet my thing. And then I do all this stuff where I would – everything gets bookmarked. Everything gets a comment. So you have all these pieces of content that you can then repurpose. And then your sales guys, when they go, when they're talking to a client, and they say, oh, well, we're looking for someone who talked about this situation. Well, here's this piece of uh, audio content where you can give them these positive rabbit holes to go down, where it's going to take them down and give them interesting um, bits to hear about. Um, the other thing is you need to start uh, getting more media on your side. Now, people think about media coverage in the wrong way. And this is what happens, I've used the example about the, the geek in the suit starting their company, and then they forgot to tell anyone, and they do one of two uh, equally bad things. One, they go hire an, uh, an agency, and agencies are death for young companies, I think. Other people might disagree with me, but I think that having your storytellers internal is way more valuable. Uh, you have the ability to tell all your stories in here. If you do a few things right, what agencies are going to do is they're going to do you're, they're going to workshop you to death. They're going to come up with some concept that doesn't really resonate with you nor your user base because they're talking about it internally. And for the amount of time it takes them to understand your business, you could have been doing laps around anything that they're going to eventually churn out. Right. The first thing you do right away on your uh, website, have, make sure you have a media kit. In there, have high res versions of your logo in all sorts of different versions. And you want your logo to look great every time it shows up. Have black and white versions of it. Have vector formats, every possible format. Then have all your requirements and all the ways for the proper format for spelling your name. It's a little easier now with the current name than with Kind, although I love Kind as a name. But with Hootsuite, you can imagine, especially internationally, all the strange ways that could possibly be spelled. I had clarification on the way we have this. Then I had 25-word, 50-word, 100-word descriptions. So then I didn't have to use that space on press releases. So I had all the different descriptions, um, executive bios, links to LinkedIn profiles, company milestones, all that kind of stuff. Because the only thing you hear about newspapers is that people are getting laid off, right? So that means the people who are left are time constrained and they have to find something interesting to, to write about. And so if you send them a press release that's all this navel gazing stuff like, this is how awesome we are, here's a bunch of technical jargon and quote from our CEO, no one's going to pay attention to it, right? But if you give them and prepackage something interesting for them and make it super easy to cover your company, then it's going to result in coverage. But the coverage isn't what turns the dials. Now, 
A lot of people in my position, they say, oh, press releases, those are dead, blah, blah, blah. You're not doing a press release in a traditional sense, and you're not doing it to get the newspaper coverage per se. The newspaper coverage is something when you get it, you repurpose to share with your clients because, oh, look, it's in Vancouver Sun. We need to send them a PDF, and here's something where we've got name checked in here. It's not going to turn the dials. But if you use it properly, you can then amplify and get more coverage out of it because you have to kind of go up the escalator with coverage. You get some small ones, and you use those to kind of trampoline you up to the next level. But you repurpose those things and utilize them because they're there for you to use. Now, the other way you foster this coverage is there's all these journalists out there who have to pretend that they understand all the shit that you guys do and all the things that the local tech economy does. They're trying, but a lot of them don't, right? They just can't stay up with the speed of it. But if all of a sudden you can help them look smarter, because that's their goal, right? They work for a newspaper. They want eyeballs on their story, and they want to look smart amongst their peers. So if you help them do those two things, and you're helping them get more eyeballs on their story because you're sharing that story with your whole user base, you're tweeting it out, you're sharing it with your, in your newsletter, in your, in your blog post news roundup and all that shit. Plus, you're helping them look smart. How are you doing that? Because when they're writing other articles, you're actually spending time and you're going and commenting on their shit, you're retweeting their things, you're adding a little bit of color. I noticed you working on this. If you do a follow-up story on that, I have some insight on this from my previous experience of that. You're not going in there going, uh, can you remind me some more? You're going in there, I'm here to help you because I know that you have the ability to help me. Everyone knows how it works, but most people forget and they think that the journalists are there because the thing that they're doing in here is so fucking magical. The whole world needs to know about it and it's your job as a journalist to write about it. It's not. Totally not their job. Their job is to get eyeballs to their news articles. So if you help them do your job, they'll help make your life easier. Also, one more thing on MediaKit, whenever you end releases, always run it with an image, okay? Now, what software companies do is they do, um, they send a logo, great, you wanna have a logo available, but that's great on the MediaKit. But they, they just take a screenshot, but they don't tailor that screenshot, you don't customize that, they don't customize that screenshot, or they let the journalist just take a screenshot. What I would do is I would always send a screenshot, but I would um, customize it so all the people in all the columns, and all the, you guys know how, what Hootsuite looks like and how it's got columns and stuff. And you see the attribution metadata in there of, of how it was sent. So we make sure all the columns are filled with uh, famous smiling people using Hootsuite, right? There would be times that I've collected uh, my archive of stuff that I've collected from other people's releases just so I can look back on it and laugh, you know, it's, and it will, you'll see all kinds of like really bad things in other people's. And, you know, when you fill up your screenshot with like tweets sent from Hootsuite in your co-tweet, you know, it's, it's super bad for, for you. So we'd customize those, round up the corners to show that we're an official Web 2.0 company and uh, put Hootsuite in the corner and then pop up a profile thing there so it's got someone's face and eyeballs. Do not ever send out a picture without someone's face and eyeballs in it. If you do that, even if it's a mascot face, got to put eyeballs in your thing to give personality. Of course, we'd pop up the profile of someone interesting and famous, and we could use their image without any kind of permission because it's publicly available uh, stuff that they're putting out there, isn't it? So you write it from the point of view as though you were the journalist the newspaper writing it. What this is going to do is make it easier for them to repurpose it. So I start with a two-sentence uh, two intro. Um, sometimes I'll even italicize this. And then you jump into the release. But you're not writing it, you're not doing our, you're not doing the um, navel-gazing at, at your company for the first paragraph. You talk about, you start with a general interest point that everyone can consume or understand. 
So you kind of keep it at arm's length that you're writing about your company at arm's length. And then you go in there and you do a customer quote instead of a CEO quote. Because you know what CEO quotes are worth? No, they're good, pretty good for buzzword bingo. You know, The dynamicism in today's changing marketplace facilitates this merger. You know, um, So you put in a customer quote that pertains directly to the point of this release. Because the other thing CEO quotes are, they're just like, we couldn't be more excited to, and it's just like you could copy and paste, you could paste that and literally end release. We're super, super excited, super excited, whatever, right? So you put in a quote that says specifically and ties ties in, and this customer who's giving you the quote needs to be available for further comment. And you also, if you're smart, pro provide a couple other clients that they can contact to follow up. So if you can sneak in two or three different clients in there, and I don't mean like the list of clients like in the boilerplate, because I don't think you want the boilerplate in there at the bottom. In that bottom third of the release, that's when you get into the specifics of the product that are going to appeal to more of the people who have some insider knowledge or, or are really the potential customers and understand the intricacies. We can say specifically in this new release, it includes the abilities to blah, 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 blah. You know, you put them in a comma delimited list and the newspaper will put them in a bolded list or vice versa. So you kind of give them some opportunity to do some structural rearranging very easily without thinking of it. Uh, and if you go back, if you really wanted to look at this, just you know, look at the early Hootsuite press releases and look what's in Mashable. And they're 90% match. Other thing about media and doing the releases, generate a friendly media list. Treat everyone on it like, uh, like gold. And that's who, you know, have a spreadsheet or whatever, CRM, whatever bullshit. Have um, maybe, uh, you know, 20 to 100, enough that you can monitor and pay attention to these media people. You pay, put them in a Twitter list, you find out, and you pay attention to what they're talking about. That's how you do that thing where you get in and kiss, um, not kiss ass, what's the other term? Ingratiate yourself yeah, to them. And then when you send out the releases, you give them a two-day heads up, and you keep the same embargo. Release day, all you're doing is commenting. Don't do anything else on release day or the next day. All you're doing is commenting and curating. Um, I go ahead and, and write a bunch of stock responses, so when that morning comes and I'm banging out a whole bunch of comments and stuff like that. I, I'm not sloppy with them and I stay on point. Plus it allows me to delegate to interns. Um, one of the big reasons Hootsuite crushed its competition um, eventually is that we were the first to take advantage of the global marketplace. Um, you think the social internet is big here? Not even close, dude. Brazil, Japan, Indonesia, like the social use is off the charts compared to Canada. And I realized this early days. We made some really smart decisions from a software standpoint and from a marketing standpoint about how we were going to go after this. The origins for me, and I'll just tell you the backstory because it's a little easier to articulate, was we saw that people were showing up and using the product in English even though they were from foreign countries. That's great. You want that. And the Internet is an American thing to try to localize down to an nth degree and splitting hairs. Um, is just an exercise in, in futility. You can't be completely local any, uh, everywhere unless you're a massive, massive, have massive company. But I took it more of the approach that we were going to show these people that they were welcome in our community, that we were paying attention to them, and that it wasn't going to be perfect, but with their help, we'll put in a serious effort to make this product better for them so they can feel more welcome and whatever. And then and, it, and then I also realized that a lot of these people who were early adopters and early users of Hootsuite were social, trying to be that social media consultant in their town. You guys know Jose in town? 
Jose was like first generation Hootsuite user. And he's like one of the guys that are like, we have Jose's all around the world. Those Jose's love the social, love being that new guy, love going around talking about it. And we recruited, started to recruit these people all over the world because they started like looking and saying, okay, people are using our tool in, in Japan. How were they learning how to use the tool? And so we found those users who were the ones kind of doing online support and helping out the other users and evangelizing. And then we found the high profile users who were kind of the pop stars and the TV stars that were using the tool that were kind of getting the word out so we'd know who to use in our release announcements. Um, so we started to gather some intelligence. And then we said, well, how are we going to make the tool in Japanese? The software guys obviously know that you, it'd be a colossal pain in the ass to make, <laughs> to make a dozen different versions of the same thing and try to port every change across all things. So um, we used a, a switched to a tool called Poodle. And now Hootsuite switched from this uh, in the last little while, but the way we did it, it's an open source framework uh, called Poodle, it's a T, and it puts in uh, strings in place of all the words, because all the words before were just hard-coded into the thing. Puts in word strings, pulls all that from a database. There's a web front end to this database that pulls out all the strings of words, and then there's a thing that says translate it to whatever. So we empowered um, using all the Tom Sawyer tactics of this is going to be really fun. You'll be part of something bigger, and we're going to make you into a, a hero in this project if you come help translate Hootsuite into whatever language. So to do it, you would just register on this web-based uh, web front end, and it would give you a line of text, and you would go and put in your translations. But then we could assign one person because, you know, of course, you guys are all thinking, of course, you'd sign up and go in there and put ass balls into everything for the translation. <laughs> so we had, uh, for each language, we uh, assigned someone. <clears throat> Keep in mind, these are all volunteers uh, to be the, I don't know, give them a title, language coordinator, uh, to go through and approve all the different things, all the different strings. So you might have five people going in there translating, and so he would go in and approve the one. So that keeps a sense of consistency and vague professionalism throughout the product. But the other reason for doing it that way is to try to get an agency or a consultancy to do this, because there's certainly lots to go out there and do it. It's going to be difficult because our product has a lot of weird words in it, you know, like what's retweet, man? What's all this? And we've got all the owl jargon in there and all our little pithy, look, we're trying to be funny, copywriting in there. And you can't, you know, the users who are passionate and close to the tool are going to be the ones that understand what those, what those terms mean. So couple things have to happen. One, you need to make a determination about, yes, uh, this product has legs internationally. For this to happen internationally, we need to have the product language localized and currency localized. Um, and if you're going to do that, uh, then you need to solve the other part of the equation, which is how are we going to, you know, the technical part of it, well, that's a pretty straightforward solution. There's, a, there's only a very few solutions. But then how are we going to get our user base to do this? Now, the one thing I wish we would have done at Hootsuite is our product, like we got the free product and the pro product and the enterprise product, right? And when, the, when we first started the translation project, it was just a free, free thingy, right? And we had maybe 3,000 word strings, but then we added an analytics module, and then we added uh, this, and then the app director, and every time, we got over 100 apps in there now, so every time there's an app, and then every time there's some new enterprise reporting thingy and some new integration with this, but all the words live in that same huge, as they did it at the time anyway, the huge trunch of words. So you get volunteers. You think, try to think of the volunteer motivations, and they go in there, and the first 100 word strings is pretty fun. 
But when you have that many word strings, the little progress meter doesn't move very fast, right? So by breaking it into modules, like here's all the translation terms that go with the fucking analytics or assignments or whatever, breaking those up. And then we could have prioritized those a little bit differently too. So that's something to think about um, with your tool. Like you might have the admin, you might have the consumer front end and the admin back end, and you want to keep those separate to and prioritize the translations um, differently. Uh, now the next thing to think about, so you've decided you're going to go global, you start to identify the markets that are most important for you, uh, what's the low-hanging fruit. The first two languages we did were Japanese and Spanish, and you couldn't be more different with that, because Japan, Japanese is Japanese is Japanese. There's one country, they speak Japanese, that's it, full stop, done. Uh, but Japan was our sometimes our first and usually our second biggest source of signups, right? So it's, and Japanese people, while everyone studies school, uh, English in school, it's about as good as the French I studied in junior high. And then Spanish is, what, 23 countries? Spanish is first language. Culturally, they're radically different, man. If any of you have been to Spain, Spain's like the smaller than Oregon. And it's like six different countries smashed together and they don't really like each other. And you're like, it'd be like yeah, hating the people up in Duncan because they're ethnically different, you know? And you start into Spain and then you go all around South America and there's all the vagaries of colonialism that haven't gone away. And Spanish Spanish and Mexican Spanish and colloquial Spanish and Latin American Spanish, there's all these variations. In Spain, there's a few varieties of Spanish. I'm like, okay, well, we'd love to make everyone their special Catalan version for the Barcelonians. But... Uh, Meanwhile, in reality, we have to find some common space. So we went to the users and we started a conversation um, with them um, about how to do this and, and how to have kind of ground zero basic Spanish. By the way, since then, we now have Spain Spanish and Latin American Spanish um, accounts. Plus, from kind of a community and support standpoint, we needed to have some coalescence around um, something. Um, but we went to our little owl mascot to be our ambassador, to bridge all these things. Because people get pissy about their languages, right? I mean, well, oh, we're Canadians. We totally know that people get pissy about their language. To mitigate that, we said, great, how can we bring all these Spanish cultures together? We said, well, let's all design an owl together. What can we have for an owl that's going to unite all this Spanish? Forget all the colonialism. Forget all the we took over your country. Forget all the... Uh, and, uh, and so we ended up with... Um, Don Quixote from the uh, Cervantes novel, which was considered the first modern, uh, um, first modern novel. And so we have a Don Quixote owl, which all the Spanish speakers all know and love because it represents their language and it's something that coalesces and ties them all together. So all the people that helped us out with the language and all the translations, then leading up to the release of Spanish, we uh, did a whole bunch of little things for them where we sent them out our little hoot kits. Uh, hoot kit is a fancy name for an envelope with some cheap swag in it, but if you give it a cool name, Everyone would really like it. I started the hoot kits when other swag didn't arrive going down to South by Southwest. So I went to the Japanese dollar store and got these rice paper side-loading envelopes that looked kind of weird. And I put in two stickers and a pin in each one and sealed them up. But there's no brand. And at South by, it's just like this brand, like just, like just, gush, puked all over you, right? So I had these plain brown envelopes with no markings on them at all as my anti-branding. And I'd present them to people. And this was when we were... 200,000 customers, right? Like this was baby days. It was Our South by team was me, Ryan, and then I hired a local yoga instructor uh, to wear the owl suit, right? That was our South by team, right? And I sat there stuffing envelopes. But now the hoot kits have turned into a whole thing. We've sent out well over 10,000 of these things all over the world. But all these people then, 
they, they volunteer dozens of hours of their time in some cases. And we send them out an envelope that's got a few stickers. <laughs> but they help design this sticker. This isn't just any sticker. This is a commemoration that they did something special. We'll send them out, you know, and they might get three in the envelope. So, of course, you put one on your laptop. Then you put one in your shoebox, you know, to keep for the future to remember this awesome day. And then you find your, your favorite Twitter buddy to give another one. And then, of course, you take a picture of it. And you tweet that shit out. And then we retweet it to say, oh, look, you know, uh, Jose in Colombia has got his hoot, his hoot, it goes, exciting day for hoot Spanish. Thanks for all your help. And then other people see that, oh, my God, they sent Jose a special sticker. He got a shout out and all this stuff. Um, so I want to participate. How do I become, how do I participate in this community? And then every time we'd launch a new language, we'd do a couple more things. One, we'd organize a hoot up, which is we'd find Jose again and say, Jose, we're going to send you 300 bucks to buy a round of drinks. Actually, 300 bucks is way over our budget most of the time. I'm going to be honest. That's the cheap and cheerful uh, slide there. <laughs> and we're going to send you down a box of swag for some prizes. And then the piece de resistance. Is that French? Uh, we would make them a goofy little video. The power of the goofy video is not to be underestimated. So I have like a, do you guys remember Mr. Dress Up? They have tickle trunks. It's like hats and boas and funny stuff like that. So I had a tickle trunk at the office, and you know, because I had a whole bunch of interns, I always had a posse to do this with. And so we'd we'd make a little welcome video for each country that, or every time they're doing a hoot up, we'd send a little personal message. But every country, when they launched the the country, instead of having like a fancy produced proper legit video, because if you either have to do a really nice video or a really crappy one, the middle ground is death. So we'd make really bad ones. When we launched in Germany, you know, I sent an intern down to get uh, some beer. Der. And I have my Oktoberfest hats and Lederhosen. And so we just stood around the table and we're like, just want to let you know, uh, before we get into anything else, that all our beers here adhere to the Bavarian purity law, which I personally think is a little unretentive, but that's, you know. And, then, and we talk about everything else except for like Hootsuite's launching in German, basically, right? And we're talking in English. We'll do a couple of things where we think we're funny. We'll say like Hootentog and we think we're funny and we <laughs> laugh at ourselves and we tease each other. And then we give shout outs to all the people who were like um, really helping out or, you know, tell some other little news or some things that's coming from for Germany. Send that out to them. And people at the company would give me, you know, especially the <clears throat> traditional marketers. Once we, I was the oldest one at Hootsuite for the first like three, four years, right? And you can tell with my mature sophistication. And then we hired in some, some, some silverbacks. You know, I'm a traditional analytical, I'm an agile marketer. I don't know, I don't know what that means, man. But like, this is what I do. I go out there and tell stories. And it's been working really good, man, because we were up to 6 million users before you signed on. But that's cool, man. Tell me about your agility, you know? They'd say, well, there's only like, you know, 50 views on this video. I'm like, so? Well, why are we making this video? Well, did it cost us anything? No. Well, it costs time. That's labor. Well, okay, this season. And I work 73 <laughs> hours a week. And so, and, and then the rest of the whole crew makes half of what you make. So go on. What's your next point? Well, and it's not on brand. Oh, I'm sorry. Our brand isn't that we're actually social and actually using social channels to communicate on a one-to-one -one authentic basis with people. What is our brand? <laughs> well, it's got to be polished. It's gotta be, and I get it, right? Like there's room for both of those things, but this is a completely different message. And those 50 views were fine because it's the 50 people that are going to be the incubators of our culture in wherever. When I tell you we've done these all over the world, when we, did, when we launched in Russia, the kid who kind of raised his hand to coordinate the translation was in Irkutsk, Siberia. 
And when I'm telling people around the company that we're going to launch in Russia, and everyone's like, oh, oh yeah. And every, they did this every time. No one ever believed that I was going to pull any of these off, right? Which just made it funny. Of course, for the video, I'm sitting on an armchair drinking vodka with uh, copies of War and Peace and Dr. Javago over my shoulder with a scarf on. And I discuss uh, hockey and, uh, and Russian literature. And then, oh, and by the way, thanks to uh, Vitaly Murkalov in Irkutsk, Siberia. And, uh, and then he sends us back pictures and video of an audience of 300 people in Siberia. None of them are in chains. None of them are in a gulag <laughs> sitting there watching our message about us launching in Russia. That whole project costs us not even four figures. So you don't need a lot of money to do these things. You need motivation and you need to actually participate with these people. And the way to do that is figure out what's motivating them. So Vitaly in Irkutsk, he's got his little small social media agency. He's in Irkutsk. So every time he says social media, everyone goes, what? And like no one knows, right? Um, or they didn't three years ago because I'm sure he's taken over by now. So all of a sudden it gives him that stamp of approval. Like I'm the official Hootsuite guy here in town. I ran the Hoot up. I coordinated the translation project. And of course, when the announcements go out about we've now launched in Dutch, uh, I say, you know, and running the coordinating at the Hootsuite at Hootsuite HQ was Rolf van Velterhoven, who was a 19-year-old intern from Wupt, Netherlands. And it was his first time away from home, and he shows up and shows up in his first day at Hootsuite. You know, and I love it when they show up and they're 19 and nervous and their first time away. And I'm on their internship sponsor, and I give them an Allen key and tell them to go put together the IKEA chair. By the end of it, they go back, and you'll never have to worry about you know getting a job because he was the coordinator for the Dutch translation project at Hootsuite. Yeah, so I have him represent us, and right away they're building up those social channels, building those relationships, um, putting the users in different lists. So we know who we can go to, and so there's a and there's a whole continuity. So yeah, that's how you take it uh, global. And I did that with country after country after country, one hog at a time. Um, what I mean by this is it's all about developing the personal relationships, and this is actually something by realizing the people at the other end of your customer call, what's their motivations, what's their what are they trying to get out of this, and if you take that same approach, all these things that I've been talking about, treating them like a human, helping them out when they need uh, help. Um, and I don't mean this in a consultative sales kind of point of view. Yeah, sure, that's great. But actually legit forming relationship with them, educating them, sharing customer stories that are specifically going to help them, checking in with them and solving their problems, but really understanding their internal company culture is your magic weapon. Um, so by doing a little bit of research and following like as soon as you get a hot prospect, you find all their executives and you follow them on a private Twitter list or you do the LinkedIn stock. And if you can find anything on LinkedIn anymore in between all the motivational bullshit, <laughs> God, you find out everything about them and how you can help them um, solve their problems within their company, right? Because they may their blocker may be we can't – people here are scared of anything that's online. People here don't think we have a problem with gift cards. People here don't understand – why or this or that a few years ago amazon web services imploded big time and took us down and netflix quora foursquare a bunch of other ones and all these companies threw them under the bus amazon under the bus we didn't we kept all our customers informed and there's problems everyone knew what was going on right but because we weren't dicks about it it totally uh, increased our relationship with amazon to where they said hey can we do a case study with you guys can we come visit you can we do a swag exchange so just by being human and not a dick, we totally built our relationship and we ended up saving a ton of money. 
but you look for opportunities, see when other people are in trouble. Um, Airbnb, we had a casual relationship. We were flirting around the edges with them. When shit hit the fan a few years ago where someone had gone in and trashed an apartment and all that. So yeah, we reached out to them. How can we help? Here's our crisis mitigation strategy for you. Because um, <laughs> we found ourselves in the center of a lot of those social implosions, right? So those kinds of stories are really, uh, really good. But when you see customers who are having some situation or, or when you can really do the research within a, a company and give them that magic bullet to sell it up the ladder, um, I realized the power of PDFs that tell people what they want to hear to get VP sign off. And this is another thing that goes back to the first story about um, the first question about like kind of what's next. Customer stories, front back PDFs, three pictures, super simple. I hate the word case study because all of a sudden, as soon as you ask customers for a case study, they think they're going to have to like hand over all their secrets, all their dirty laundry. And it always comes from the standpoint like there was a problem that we had to solve and da -da -da, our software is the solution. The case studies, I'd write, I'd make them call them customer stories because it sounds less onerous, and I'd make the customer into the superstar. You distribute that, and then it makes your person that you're dealing with face-to-face -face at the company, it makes them look like the champion, right? And so it fluffs them. It's going to get them another 25 cents an hour raise or whatever, and, but it also is going to be a really useful piece of sales collateral. When we were first starting out, um, we were always trying to get that big fish thing, but even like I did one with TransLink, because all the wonderful things that TransLink does. and But that ended up being a key piece to us getting all these other what, transit authorities all over the world. This one little cheap and cheerful customer story, and it, went, and it, and it totally had legs. You did another one, uh, New York Public Library. And you don't think public libraries is a good enterprise social media customer candidate. It's a great one for us, but it was unexpected. And, and it's a great story, and, and people keep on going back. Of, so the, I realized that the power was venerable institutions um, that have name recognition. So you're basically piggybacking off of other people's name recognition, the Guggenheim Museum. But those people's motivation is they just want validation that what they're doing is right. So you come up with some little thing, some statistic or some little minor problem, you know, because you would need to have a three-act story, you know, to to kind of tell the story. Don't Don't overdo them, you know. And then it gives them something simple and digestible. And again, a lot of times I think your customers are probably selling up to approval to people who understand the, th the, the landscape even less. So the simpler you can spell it out and you can say brand name of a company that you're familiar with did this same thing that we're telling you to do and they came out of it smelling really good. So their corollary is if I do the same thing, um, I will look like I was way smarter than I really am. Market by market, we started to realize and language by language, Different languages and different cultures and different industries really needed different materials or cared about different things. Some countries really were adamant about having integrations with whatever social network was popular in their area, right? So in the Netherlands, there was one called Hives, um, VK, Vyakonte, um, in Russia, Orkut, owned by Orkichi, owned by Google, um, big in Brazil. So we did integrations with these tools. Um, but it wasn't really because we were expecting it to turn the dial. It was more to show a sign of respect. And we say that, yeah, we know in Brazil, doing things like spelling Brazil with an S rather than a Z too, these things are huge. Um, it was more a sign of respect and we're listening to you and paying attention to you. So in your case, it's going to be a matter of, I, I think the correlator for that was is finding um, benchmark users in your new markets who have some brand recognition 
that are willing to let themselves be in a customer story. You know, because some countries, the Spanish market, there was a huge lack of social media education kind of case studies. So we started backfilling all the old case studies and customer stories um, with Spanish versions. And they were quickly um, were more downloaded than the English versions, just because there was a huge lack of that information. So kind of pinpointing and think of these things as sniper missions rather than carpet bombing is, uh, is really powerful. Um, you know, another thing, and this might tie into gift cards, Japan is very much a cash culture. And once we started charging for the product, we had all these Japanese users, but why aren't they converting? Well, transactions happen in cash, cell phone purchases, like cell phone text to purchase, you can purchase like everything, um, and bank transfers. And we didn't have any of those options available, nor do we have JCB cards. And some countries are much more comfortable dealing in U.S. currency than others are. Um, and then we had to look at things like, like Indonesia is an, an incredibly fascinating market because the average GDP is super low there, right? So people think like when you look at traditional business analysis where you look at um, what's the GDP, you know, what's, how much corruption is there, you know, look at these kind of things. You look at Indonesia, like why would I go to Indonesia? Except the entire country, man. Um, like Buddhist monks rolling with their smartphones, right? And everyone's on social. Twitter is like a, a nationwide chat group there. And then there's tools one, like messaging and chat all over Asia. And I'm talking about little remote islands where you're hard-pressed to get electricity and everyone's on social. But you look at a country like Indonesia, 17,000 islands, and they need to have some way to communicate. But there's also massive shopping and consumer culture there, right? One of the world's fifth biggest economies, I think, yeah, something. Or a market like Brazil, it's fascinating. And you think about how much money is going to be spent in Brazil this year and how fast it's going to progress. Because internet in Brazil, they just keep, they just wait for whatever technology to get old and they leapfrog it, right? So they went from like skip dial up and wired in there, went just right, right to Wi-Fi and everything's smartphones and everything's, uh, there are huge advocates of open source um, software in Brazil. So it's a whole different market kind of profile there. So you find a way to show respect to each particular market, each particular customer and learn more about their market and their company than they, they, than they even know. Okay, remember our suit and our geek, and they have their product to, to release. And then they either hire an agency and spend all their money and second mortgages their house and go out of business in eight months. Um, they phone the newspaper and try to do it themselves, like what people used to do. Where they're, First thing, our marketing strategy is a Yellow Pages ad. <laughs> um, <laughs> they try and get some newspaper coverage and think that's just going to do it. And then the third thing that happens is events. And the specter and the, of events comes calling. They'll have some neat name, Comdex, Web Expo, Cyberweb, something. And they get, you get your expectations. We really need this, this thing to really pop. We really need this event to be great. And you put all these cycles into this event. And then you start spending stuff on flying personnel. But then becomes the worst part is the trade show booths. And a lot of these places... Most all of them, in fact, are uh, unionized locations, and God bless the unions and whatever, but uh, except when I'm doing a trade show and they can go cough, because I don't want to spend uh, buy rent carpet from the exclusive carpet vendor for $1,500. Oh, would you like underlay with that? Oh, would you like that installed? Well, you have to have it installed because you're not allowed to do anything. Would you like us to do your load-in because you, as a vendor, can't carry anything heavier than a box? Um, no, you can't have a hand truck in there. No, no you can't do that. Now, would you like to sponsor the special reception thing? Oh, no, you don't? Okay, great. Here's your corner booth that no one will ever see. Uh, you know. 
and you get your stuff all built up. You go there, you're dehydrated. It's a beautiful day out because it's always a beautiful day whenever you're stuck inside of this trade show every fucking <laughs> time. And you're stuck in there, and people are coming around, and they do this thing where they look to see if you have any free pens, right? <laughs> and then the people who are bored, or usually the other people at booths, come around and make you do your little elevator pitch, and you're like, oh, we do this. Oh, great. That sounds really cool, man. All right. <laughs> and you've printed all these brochures and you've hired all this stuff and you've hired extra staff and you and at the end of it you go back to your report and and your your marketing's aligning with sales and you're like okay so how many hot prospects did you bring back and you're like well we got a little we did a lot of brand awareness <laughs> i think the people are going to call and the sales guys go god damn it i need sales leads did you give them a coupon code? Yeah, well, we, you know, but who uses coupons for that? It doesn't really fit with it. Well, if people don't call saying that they saw this in this trade show, that was a waste of money. How much did we spend on that? Well, it depends on, did we count in the all the hours we spent? Well, we still have some leftover brochures, except, damn it, we printed on there to come to our cocktail reception that four people came to. So those brochures are now useless, too. So let's see, we spent our entire fucking marketing budget, and we got nothing out of it, except you did get something. You got some miserable employees who just spent a weekend inside doing a trade show. So there is that that you got. <laughs> what do you do instead? A, you don't do cheesy trade shows. You just don't do them. Full stop, don't do them. Instead, you get out of the echo chamber of doing shows that are specifically aligned with your industry. There's no reason you should be doing a trade show with a bunch of other tech companies because you're not a tech company. You use technology because everyone uses fucking technology, man. We use knives and forks. They're technology, right? You are a retail enablement, whatever, and uh, you're a retail sparker, right? You're encouraging retail sales, so you should be hanging out with retailers, right? Now, I worked for an e-commerce company in Vancouver called Elastic Path for a while, and we would go to these shows that were just a bunch of other e-commerce vendors. And you're like, what's the point of us being here, you know, so people can go around and shop? But are people really making a decision at the trade show based on who gives them the nicest pen or who's sponsoring the cocktail party for an additional charge of only $35,000, right? And no, they're making their decisions based on research that they're doing in a sober moment, sitting at their desk, reading shit online, or having a conversation with the sales person who's providing them with useful sales information. They're not making the decision at the trade show. They're going around, oh, it's just, it's good to put a face to a name. Oh, is it $5,000 good? You know? Isn't your face, isn't the picture your face on your LinkedIn shit, dude? Or is that someone else? You know, like, do we really have, is it that important for us to talk? But there is something <laughs> worse, and that is the events where you pay money to go talk to the events. And that's just a hole that you just throw money into. Because um, it's just you're just entertainment, right? And it can be useful if you're doing something like this where we're recording this, and then you get a piece of content, and you become all of a sudden a thought leader. And if it's a part of a bigger strategy... But a lot of these conferences, they'll say, give us 10000 bucks and we'll give you a, a speaker slot. And you're in there with a lineup of other, uh, of a, usually a bunch of mid-level execs from every company you can name who all they do is go around and do the conference circuit, right? So you're going to have the dude from Microsoft and the dude from Google, and you're going to go up and try and follow them where they're semi-pro speakers, and they have their whole little slick slide deck, and they've done this in, in Calgary yesterday and Dubuque tomorrow, and you're up there with the whole future of your company in your hands, you're expected to go up there and be a public speaker. Well, you're not a fucking public speaker, man. You're a CEO, you're a CTO, you're a programmer, you're a marketer. Watching the keynotes at, at South By, um, when it's the techie guys, like watching the dudes from Twitter give a keynote, like, I don't understand what you're saying, man. None of this makes sense. You're clearly nervous. 
Someone should have smoked you out before this, you know? Zuckerberg was in the bathroom puking before his talk. And his talk was like a softball, like this girl who's clearly like, so, is it fun to be Mark Zuckerberg? <laughs> so you don't want to put yourself at a disadvantage by going up there with a bunch of these guys with custom-tailored suits, unless you're going to go up there and own it and be like, all right, this is who I am, and that's kind of what I was sort of ended up doing. When I'm going up following dudes from Google, I'm not going to out-Google them, but I can out-punk rock them easily, <laughs> right? So if you are going to commit yourself to doing this thought leadership kind of strategy, and we kind of talked about it a little bit there with the blog post as well, um, in, you need to put someone out there of the company as a public, as a public face that actually has the time. And, and this is really difficult because – CEOs want to be the public face, right? And they are the public face whether they want to be or not of the company. But there has to be sort of a sidekick. I call it, you know, when I go do speaking gigs, I tease Ryan saying I was going to be a stunt double, you know? He goes to London, I come to Victoria. He goes to San Francisco, I go to Bellingham. You know, I could take the smaller gigs, right? But you need to build someone else up in the company who's going to be that resourceful, can go on the road and do the road show if you're going to do that. Yeah, they have to commit to it or else don't bother, right? Because you, you, this isn't something you can do halfway. For me, I've been doing, I, I, you know, just from my growing up, I sort of had this thing where I, I know how to go to crowds and talk. Um, but instead of finding the tech conventions, what I do is the Association of Alternative News Weeklies. So this is all like the Georgia Straits and the Village Voices of, of the world. Uh, I went and did their conference. And that's people who are not just great users. Like, those are great users for us, right? Um, they're also wicked prospects. And they're people who need help from a company like us, right? And because I have a lot of interest and experience with publishing, I went down there to a conference in New Orleans. I do. Go Cups. You can get a beer to go in New Orleans. Would you like that comically large beer to go, sir? Yes. Yes, I would, because I am an adult. Yes. But this alternative Newsweekly is one. It was an audience of, uh, you know, publishing industry is struggling, especially the dailies. They're all dying, right? But these smaller Newsweeklies um, have an entrepreneurial edge to them. They're small enough to still be nimble, and they have some really neat advantages over the dailies right now where they're able to do these kind of more promotional and more community-building act activities because they have a little bit of an arm's-length relation relationships from pretending to be actual journalists, right? So that was a killer audience where I had 200 people that all have independent – little newspapers that need our knowledge and they flew me down there and put me up at like some like there's also another index like the fancier the hotel room the less time I actually get to spend there too so like I'm in the Ritz or something I was in there for like one hangover sleep and that's it right so that was a great a great audience for us but going to like there was one in Vancouver they're coming through and doing a Canada place and bringing in all the tech companies technology I'm like okay if someone in Vancouver isn't already using our tool what the fuck do I have to do go over to their house and make them a sandwich Right. And um, and you know, like there's no benefit for us hanging out in a place with all these other technology companies. So we turn them down and turn them down. But <laughs> and and I said, but I don't want just some little bullshit booth. Like if we're the big brand in Vancouver, I want like a big proper thing. So when you walk in corner booth and all this. And instead of having a booth, I set up um, uh, red carpet photo opportunities with Ali, but only at certain times. Right. Because if you have a mascot there all the time, then everyone's like, oh, there's a mascot there all the time. I'll maybe whatever. Maybe I'll take a picture. That's no big deal. But if you create demand through artificial scarcity, and I only had, no, from 
12 to 1 and from 2 to 3 or something like that, like two one-hour blocks or half-hour blocks or whatever. Then people were lining up. And keep in mind, the original owl costume is something we bought on eBay for 50 bucks, right? And I, for the record, I never put it on. And I would hire people off Craigslist to wear it for, you know, 10, 20 bucks an hour. I get into a town for some event. And, and, and while I didn't do a lot of events, every time I go speak somewhere, I'd always bring the owl costume in a hockey bag um, with me on the airplane and, and hire some guy on Craigslist. I have a whole book of short stories in my head about people I've hired off Craigslist to wear the owl costume. <laughs> so I did the red carpet photo ops with Owly, but I brought the tickle trunk, of course. So owls and bolas. So what I ended up with is a huge stash of stock photography of smiling, happy people with our brand, being funny and articulating our brand. So we have this whole stash of hundreds of pictures that we could then eke out over the over the years until we got the new owl costume, the old owl. Um, and then I did, uh, and then the other stagger hours, I did social media workshops. So we're actually educating people and having an interactive experience. So instead of having that awkwardness of sitting in a booth and people put a table in between them and the person that they're talking to, that makes no sense. I'm no feng, feng shui expert, but I know that that don't work, right? Um, instead, you bring in chairs, you give some people a place to sit down and some water because those are two things you don't get at a conference, especially when you're the guy in there stuck all day drinking, uh, drinking way too much coffee and then you're all dehydrated. So we did little workshops, and I had three different themes, and people could come by, and I had different panelists for each thing, um, and I ran little workshops. And so it uh, worked out way better, cost us nothing, and totally reinforced our brand message. Um, the people who came to the workshops, I figured they're keeners, so if they ask a question, that means I, they get the question, then do you want to join my cult and become a Hootsuite ambassador? You get a free sticker. And then I send them out to the world. And you know, keep in mind now, the ambassador program has over 800 participants in it. Still free. But the way to motivate people is they want to be part of something bigger than themselves. They want to get accolades and become an expert in their field. And that's I think that's the that's the one that's really the magic for you guys, because there's these people out there that want to be the expert in your industry. Then, you know, and if you do get opportunities for events and you do get a speaking slot, maybe it's not someone from your company that speaks. Maybe you find that person who's uh, Betty the coupon queen that knows everything about gift cards, or someone's probably there's got to be a gift card exchange out there. I bet you there's a website that's dedicated to gift card exchange. You find that guy and have him come up and tell stories because you point the light on yourself, right? Then it's all blinds you out. Like this is the photographer's trick. Reflected light looks way better on you. So you have that guy talk about you in a roundabout way by telling stories from the gift card trenches. That reflected light looks way better on you than going up there and giving your stump speech. Way better. Plus it saves you all the anxiety and preparation. <laughs> Events not sucking. I built a relationship with South By by um, first for doing the public speaking, and I got great reviews on my talk, and so I built my way up that way. But then when we started doing Hootsuite, you can pay a ton of money to do events, or you do events rogue and run the risk of pissing off South by Southwest. So I took choice two, even though at the same time we were making them really happy with the software. I did all my events outside of the usual South by organizational structure, but we did things like. Um, street hockey for food to raise money for the local food bank. And we had companies come in and pay 500 bucks to participate in our street hockey tournament. And we got the Dallas Stars to come out and provide like an inflatable rink. Some of their, um, in the state, some of the hockey teams have cheerleaders in the Hoochie Mama outfits and all that. So they sent a batch of them. Uh, Doug Lidster, former Canuck, Doug Lidster. Again, this event, we it was 
completely cost neutral to us. We showed up with the, we organized it, uh, put the word out, did all the promo, um, but we had everyone else pay for it. So that's another great way to do events without actually paying for them. And then the story became Hootsuite raises all this money for the local food bank because we wanted to position ourselves as we're not just another company of tech douchebags who rolls in here and parties and trashes your town and leaves. Um, so like I got all my, like the Hoot Bus, have you guys seen the Hoot Bus? Uh, hashtag Hoot Bus. Um, mm-hmm. I, I got an old airport shuttle bus and I got some art car makers down in Austin because Austin there's art car makers to make a giant owl bus. And so it has this giant foam owl that stretches us all fully wrapped. And then you go inside, there's a dance platform on top and a disco ball inside and USB ports and <laughs> brutal stereo and, oh, and a CO2 tank to refill the twin t-shirt cannons that at first they just shot t-shirts, but then I was like, t-shirt, t-shirts are lame for swag, right? Because you have you always end up with the wrong fucking size, no matter what you do. You end up with the wrong sizes. Then you have that awkward conversation with someone on the road where you're they're like, oh, can I have a t-shirt? And you're like, oh, I only have a small left. And they're like, oh, I think that'll fit. I'm like, honey, no. <laughs> uh, so t-shirts are, are kind of a drag. They're useful in a way. But if you want, I can talk more about uh, swag. But the thing I want to tell you with the t-shirt cannon, uh, scarves, I got like soccer scarves and would shoot those up because then they would unfurl in the sky. And people would literally be running out into the road to get them. And when I started doing them, everyone's like, why are you doing scarves in Texas? It's really hot there. I'm like, do you think all the people in South by live in Texas? No, they're going back to Milwaukee and Boston, and they'll love the fucking scarf, man. Uh, and then the next year, to top that, I did a little plush, uh, little plush owls. And that we, I, you know, I measured the, the gauge of the T-shirt cannon, made the t- got the owls made just to the exact gauge, and so they'd really pop and they'll fly. Turns out they don't fly. Yeah. All right, events. So get someone else to pay for the events. Don't pay for events. Don't speak if you're not a good speaker. Get someone else to do it. Tom Sawyer's shit out of this. Make it interesting. Okay, um, I hate the word KPI. Um, this one is kind of the corollary to this one here. Is fuck stats make art. I've seen companies who spend an incredible amount of time spreadsheeting and metricizing and condensing their business into a series of numbers that really mean almost nothing. Because businesses are emotional creatures. Businesses are living organisms. And especially when you look at it from outside perspective, brands are completely fluid and flexible and things can change so radically fast, especially in this world in which we uh, find ourselves with these kinds of businesses. You know, you see companies like Meerkat go from the newest, shiniest thing one day to completely toast the next day. You see Evernote and Dropbox and these companies, kind of companies in drop uh, in death spirals right now, you know. Um, and I think a lot of the reason is companies delude themselves by thinking that uh, they get addicted to their KPIs and they think top-end signups or these kinds of things, they, they start looking at the wrong things to, uh, to actually measure and to pay attention to. So the things that I would pay attention to, I would think of as precursors to even the KPIs or whatever. And that's just kind of measuring the froth, right? So I would measure things like how many media mentions were there. Um, these were things that are important to us. But then things like not how many user signups, because you know it's easy for companies to get drunk on the, the new user signups. But it's like how many active users, how many things happened per day, how many messages were pushed out 
those days. Those things are more important, but those things are kind of the end result for the actions that you've taken two steps before. And, you know, what I thought about um, my role as a marketer was really generating the attention um, and letting that community and letting the market take care of that next part of the education. So we're, we're, we're more of a, you've know, you got to think of yourself more as a spark plug and a bus driver than you do as an analyst. Now, the analytics are much more powerful afterwards, I think, when doing things like measure and when we launch in a new country and trying to show the rest of the company that if we put an effort into a country, the, uh, you know, the active user delta goes up this much instead of that much. If we do nothing, is this worth it for us to, to do this? But measuring those things can only be done after putting best efforts because you know, if you do a half-assed effort, you're going to get half-assed results, and those aren't going to inspire anyone to keep going on it. So I think instead you have to measure the, the activity of the community. And I don't I mean kind of small C community with this. What I mean is who's out there that doesn't really identify themselves as I'm part of the GiftBit community, but there's people out there advocating, and there's, your, there's users and customers out there who are really advocating on your behalf. And I would say the things you want to measure are how many people in our audience in our world of influence, did we inspire to share our message, to tell our story, to mention our name, to end up on, uh, you know, name check us on some podcast interview that they did, to actually run a new promotion within their store or whatever. And I'm sorry, my examples suck for you guys, but you know, who, which, how many customers did we inspire to, to start a new campaign? Or we floated this idea out and how many people took hold of that kind of thing. Those kind of engagements and that connective tissue between you and the market is incredibly difficult to, to, to measure. And it's even more difficult to squeeze into a business case that fits into a spreadsheet. But this is what I know about this. If you make interestingness and generally engage and participate with, the, uh, with, your, with your customers and your users, and you produce interesting content that uh, stimulates uh, the conversation and even effectuates positive change within this industry and within this landscape. And that a positive change might be smarter companies, smarter consumers, um, you know, whatever. Um, it doesn't have to be, uh, you know, Gandhi changing the world. It can be tiny steps changing the world. Um, that's what you have to figure out a way to measure. The rest of that stuff, by the time it gets to a KPI, it's too late, man, you know, because there's like a six-month lag time from the actions that you take from when I send out that goofy little video that 20 people watch because we're wearing funny hats and drinking vodka to you can't expect that next day, oh, well, you may send out that video. The next day, click should go up. No, no, no. This is seducing people into our world, into our culture. This isn't sending out uh, top 10 pictures of famous ladies showing their boobs on BuzzFeed, which is going to get clicks right away. Right? This is the slow burn, and this has taken a long-term approach to nurture and fertilize um, this community. You don't want to be Zynga. Right? You don't want to just throw a bunch of gas on a fire. You want to load it up with good hardwood and let that thing burn for a long time. What this means is, and it's kind of like the approach like uh, 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 with, in sports, is the people who say, well, you just know the intangibles. And there's the people who go, oh, the Corsi Fenwick rating. And you kind of got to find your sweet spot in between there. and um, but I contend strongly that by the time you're getting to the KPI, it's too late, and you have to find things, um, the precursors to say if we to find the cause that measures the effect, and the effect is the KPI, and the cause you have to figure out what that cause is, 
and do more of it. Um, now, some of my causes, I would put in my report to uh, my weekly report, you know, how many hoot kits we sent out. And it seems like, oh, isn't that cute? You sent out a bunch of little letters. But no, this is planting the seeds. They're going to bear fruit months, months later. And now uh, with all these, uh, again, using the international as an example, you know, the growth wasn't, didn't come fast out of the gates necessarily. And there's lots of users that don't even realize there's a localized version for their language, which is a, which is a UX uh, engineering problem. But of course, the engineers, you know how one, when you build a thing right out of the box, you get minimum viable product or whatever, right? And then all of a sudden, a whole bunch of people sign up, like millions of people sign up, and you're like, fuck, we didn't, we didn't know it was going to work. You know, we didn't know it was going to be popular. So, you know, like I'm, you're, we're competing for engineering hours while everyone was competing for engineers in the entire province and the country and all that. Uh, and so, you know, there was, there, there was other functional things, but I had to resign myself to like, it's baby steps. And if we do a whole bunch of little baby steps all in a row, then eventually in three years from now, we'll dominate all these international markets. Now, fast forward to three years from now, and Hootsuite has offices in Sao Paulo and Singapore. London has more than 100 people. And you go, oh, London, that's an English-speaking market. But it's just because they speak the same language doesn't mean the market behaves the same at all. And if you want to say UK is anything <laughs> like the US market, what? And holy smokes, trying to design an owl for the UK, I got the full brunt of the, uh, the anal retentiveness of, well, is it the UK? Is it the British Isles? You know, you get all these things. Well, do we include... Uh, you know, you can't do Can we put Ulster and Ireland in the same owl? Can the same owl represent? How about Guernsey and Jersey? How about the Falklands? That's technically the United Kingdom. What do we do? So we turned that again into a conversation with the user base and uh, said, what's your nominations? There can be nothing to do with royalty, with government, with war. So that eliminated 90% of people's ideas. <laughs> and what do we end up with? I'll give you a hint. It has the same sort of literary connection as the Spanish one. And we had to appease the Scots. Arthur Conan Doyle wrote uh, that. So we had a little Sherlock, well, it was a Sherlock Holmes owl. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and Conan Doyle is, uh, was Scottish. And that's like, you know, it was a good universal thing. But, um, and, 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 you know, people get, like I said, in particular about the language, and the Brits certainly are, and they want the extra use, like the Canadians do and everything. And so you have to approach the market very differently. For me, one of the most valuable things from my whole experience for a marketer and growing Hootsuite and all this. Um, and keep in mind, we didn't spend a dollar on advertising until we had six million users. Keep that in mind. Was uh, was hitchhiking hitchhiking to foreign countries with no money. Yeah, yeah. I was I arrived in Europe at 21 with no return ticket and 220 dollars in traveler's checks. This was when we still had borders and no cell phones and no internet. Um, mm. But hitchhiking around, you know, you learn how to solve problems, you learn how to deal with crisis, but you learn the nuances of, of people because you have to watch people really carefully because you don't want to be beat down and you like to get a ride and you like to <laughs> you learn how to read you learn how to read people i have a whole big long talk that i've given here in victoria called fuck stats make art the thesis of it being we have all these incredible tools at our disposal and it's wicked cheap to amplify and tell stories all over the place right but we waste our time with bottom feeding pablum and we have this social media and all these social channels that can be the platform of revolutionary change and le at least um, interesting personal expression. And it's been completely mutated as just another way to spooge a brand all over the place and click at shiny objects. And I think that's lame. So I think people should think about making things that are going to last for hundreds of years rather than tens of minutes. 
So I have an essay called Rockstar Training School, My Tips for Managing Interns. And I can remember a few of them off the top of my head right here. Give them titles. Don't ever call them interns. Treat them respect. Treat them cool. From day one, giving them, give, give them meaningful projects to work on. Right from the get-go. Don't say, oh, you're here. Oh, don't take out the trash. No, that's cool, man. You got someone doing the real work. You can take out the trash. Don't ever make them get you coffee because getting coffee is the funnest part of your day and you should go enjoy that and have a little break. I would have people audition for the internships. I don't like just the nature of, of limited budgets and fast-growing small companies. I mean, interns and practicing students are a wonderful, wonderful um, thing. But if it takes you three months to get them up to speed, then that's counterproductive. So we were talking, right, that would be like, can you, uh, can you write well? The write, writing well was a core thing, unless there was something else that they really had. But I kind of had my core profile of what I needed. I needed versatility. Um, I ended up, as, as international became more and more in my portfolio, second, third languages became a big part of it. So I started to find the magic of three culture kids, people who grew up with parents from two different cultures and they grew up in a third country. Country, mm -hmm. So a lot of military brats or uh, children of diplomats, which were like the most valuable thing. And all these like international. So I had like a whole little tin tin book in my in my office. And then I always tell, I'd always tell them that <clears throat> I'll always care more about you as a human being than as free slash cheap labor. Because if someone's in there and they're desperate to get a job and, and I don't want to take them down a path that's not going to lead them. I want this to be a productive thing. And sometimes people, I mean, we've all been desperate and all been out, well, except for you engineers. Actually, you've never had to look for a job, have you? This isn't a problem. <clears throat> for all the liberal arts majors here, um, you know, like you're out there and you're hustling, you're clawing, you're trying to get along in the world. And there's people I've told them, this, this isn't a right situation for you. You need, to, you need a paycheck. You need, you know, like this isn't right for you. Um, or there's people who throughout their time there, I said, you know, like, let's find you something else. And I've helped them get jobs. And. Um, and then the other thing I tell them is I'll never ask you to do something that I haven't done a thousand times before. Like I've stuffed more hoot envelopes than anyone else, right? So you can't bitch and moan about that. Um, I've done more media logging and written more media roundups and done more listening and responding because all those things I've done a thousand times. You want to talk to me about tech support tickets? Yeah, sit down, son. You know. <laughs> um, and then once they then once they were done their uh, internship, I'd always make sure I did the follow up care really well. The letters of recommendation and the and the LinkedIn recos and those kinds of things. Imagine yourself 22, just getting started in the world. Actually, some of you don't have to imagine being 22 because you're probably 22. But um, uh, those things that would actually give them a little uh, uh, startup kit for going out in the job world. And then right away, um, I would uh, mispronounce their last name and give them a nickname. Uh, <laughs> that's just because I'm kind of a dick. And then and then I, I would usually sit them down right um, right next to me too. Which would make them, you know, make them feel like, oh my goodness, I'm here and I'm being taken seriously. But so much of the international is grateful to um, international practicum students. All right, so be your own user. Um, this was the starts with listening. You have to listen to everything that your users are saying everywhere. Uh, and this is, goes back to what I was saying about the vocabulary and coming up with the custom vocabulary. In my first week at Hootsuite, I started the media logging. Uh, I started a listening dashboard where I uh, listening in Hootsuite. But also listening, uh, I took a whole bunch of RSS feeds from Social Mention and plugged them into NetVibes. Um, so everything uh, that I could build an RSS feed for searches, but doing the Google News alerts is for rookies, right? And people think like, oh, I'm a PR guy, just uh, do no, 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 you don't get, you don't get, you don't even get started with that. 
So much of the conversations of the internet still happen in forums, right? Which Google like rolls their eyes at. You know, that's not been important since GeoCities. And um, and all the social channels are indexed terribly. I mean, Facebook, Facebook, did search even exist? I mean, they don't even pretend that search exists. Twitter search is completely flaky. For a long time, Twitter search was like disappeared after a day and a half. So um, monitoring all those back channels is the thing about listening. And that's where you start to collect the information about what it's like to be your own user. Now, one of the reasons I was able to build Hootsuite so quickly, so successfully is because I used the fuck out of the product. And from when it first came out as BrightKit, I was looking for Rain City Studios. And I, I was one of the first hundred users and I used the fuck out of the tool. So by the time I switched over to the company, because there's already a tool, uh, like I knew how to use that thing like lights out. And so I could communicate really closely with developers about things like putting the, the how we should put in the geolocation to geolocate the searches, which is an incredibly powerful feature. Um, if you are doing an event, especially geolocating all the tweets around that uh, area. Okay, here's the be your own user. Actually participate. So you guys do something with retail gift cards. How many of you actually use retail gift cards? Yeah, all right. Uh, good, we got 10% there. That's super. <laughs> uh, how many of you read blogs and pay attention to, like there's, like, I'm sorry, I don't really understand this thing because I'm not a very good consumer. I buy everything secondhand and, um, and, uh, but there's those people out there who care passionately about gift cards and this problem that you guys are solving. You have to become that person. You have to become someone who buys and trades gift cards, who uses gift cards, who gives gift cards its presence that actually becomes that person. You have to encourage, uh, in order to understand why people have this problem with gift cards in the, in, the, in the first place, like why don't people use their gift cards? Why do people think the way they do about gift cards? What's the problem? And I, I, I realized when I was cleaning out a desk one time, I got a, a, a prepaid Visa gift card one year for Christmas from Hootsuite and I misplaced it and I went and looked it up and I it totally expired. I was like, why didn't I use that gift card? Where if it would have been an object, because one year we got jam boxes, and I still have that jam box, but why didn't I use the gift card? What's the psychology behind that? Someone in here has to be that person who obsesses over this shit, right? When I worked for Elastic Path, the e-commerce company, I couldn't be that guy because I don't buy shit, right? Like, I don't buy, like, anything. So I was a terrible person to do that. And the guy I was working for had gave me an assignment to go through all these major retailers things and pretend to buy items so I could measure how many clicks it took to get to checkout. And I was terrible for it because, you know, like I just didn't enjoy that kind of thing. But someone in here is super passionate about gift cards. You better be someone, at least one person better be uh, from a consumer standpoint. Um, so you actually have to participate. Now, the reason there's this awesome photo this young man from this rock and roll band has jumped into the audience and it's super fun because you're in there and you dance with all the people but also sometimes you get an armpit in your face so it's kind of gross too um, and that's the pros and cons of being your user you're going to find faults in your product uh, and your offering and your messaging and you guys um, and I think this is really important while you're still a small nimble group of getting to that point where you're very comfortable marketers talking to developers is incredibly important and completely fucking broken in most companies completely, right? And when marketers go, um, um, say, well, this is what we hear in the market, and then developers say, we have our roadmap, we're on our plan, it's two completely different syndromes of thinking, right? One is all an abstract thought. Developers cannot work in abstract, in that kind of, you know, this concrete thing. Once you commit code, it's fucking code, man. It's a thing. It can't be an idea. It can't be a cute little sketch of a code. It's got to, you know. So 
there and a lot of companies I see this tense relationship. Um, and then the developers start throwing out terms like product discipline, and then the marketers go, well, you know, it's it's the experts that need to define the product, not the market that needs to define the product, but this is what we hear from the market. And then the salespeople go, well, the market says they won't buy this thing until we have this feature. So you have this 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 conundrum that goes on in companies because um, there's three different points of view of looking at the product. So if you have someone who becomes the internal consumer, yeah, so someone's got to love being a user. Yeah, set up a little sideline business. Yeah, that's the thing. Set up a little sideline business. Like one of you, uh, you know, one of your your friends or relatives is probably doing some little business anyway. You set up a Shopify site and you start doing just for the excuse to try your gift cards and experiment with them. Like um, when I get new recruits, anyone would come in and say that they were a, a you know social media expert or marketer, I go, great. So what are you doing social media marketing for? Well, you can't be a social media expert unless you do social media talk about something other than social media. So what thing are you using social media to talk about that is not social media? So there's a lot of these people who they do nothing but conferenceize and talk about social media. Uh, but you actually have to have a story and substance behind that thing that you do. So by having your own little sideline business or some little thing that you're doing, it's going to teach you all the pain and it's going to show you how to move those, those levers. You know, so I tell people, like, even if you're just doing social media for your kid's Cub Scout troop or a softball team or some cause that you care about or your podcast that you do about comic books, whatever, just by using, even with a small experiment, if you can make something go up 10% with 100 uh, subscribers, you can probably make something go up 10% with 100,000 users, the effect of which will be much mightier. But the, the experiments are quite, quite similar. And, it, and like I said, it comes down to storytelling being interesting. Not spending money. I was saying to, to Peter earlier that this time is super important for creating these cultural connective tissue that will go on no matter how big the company gets. And these are things like if you establish a, a culture of checking egos, of open communication, of people not getting butthurt about stuff, if marketers are let into the process to understand how developers make decisions and how the developer roadmap works, that takes away a huge amount of the friction. And as developers listen to marketers say, we need to move quickly when we see an opportunity, it was just me, six developers um, in the room for the first long time. And it was a small room, so we knew everything everyone was saying. And because I have a, I've been around a lot of startups, and usually I was the only liberal arts guy, a bunch, a bunch, a bunch of technically-minded folks, I understood and I wasn't afraid to A, be stupid, be at stupid questions, and uh, and but but more importantly, show them respect because they're the ones who build a fucking product. Without them building a the product, I'm gonna don't got a job, right? And a lot of times there's this eye rolling by the suits about the devs. Let's be honest. Um, so because I was there participating, and then right away that they saw me, I was the, you know because developers have a great culture and esprit de corps about we're here till two in the morning doing a release, right? And that's a fun time. That's Christmas for developers in a lot of times. You race through this thing, you do the sprint, and you're like, ah, oh, you bitch and moan about it, but then you all crack beers and have a pizza and that kind of thing. So I actively participated in that culture with them, and I would be there at 2 in the morning while we're doing the releases, and I would tell them why we needed to do flip the trigger at certain times because I had the press release and the blog post and everything. Everything was timed, and the dominoes would fall down to all point back to the thing before. So this is why we have to be in sync. And so when I would be there launching the product with them, and then they would see me take over and be, you know, banging out comments, and then they would see all the froth that came out, we generated a culture of mutual respect because they saw that immediacy and that that um, 
the the actual work that we do because I think a lot of times that marketing comes off as sort of like fluffy and like oh we're conceptualizing we're think tanking you know whatever so they saw the actual work and I remember the night that we were like launching the paid product and we we're sending out um, all the emails to say thanks for using Hootsuite we love you consider paying that'd be great if you don't want it that's cool too we're just gonna take away t-shirts <laughs> um, and it was you know two in the morning and it was like this little ragtag crew of us. Um, and we all always remember that night. I remember MailChimp kept on asking me, are you sure you want to send this message? And I'm like, no, I totally don't want to. <laughs> and one of the developers would hand me a shot of rum, and I'd take a shot of rum and hit the yes. Because we had the messaging going out in Japanese, Spanish, and English, and then different messaging based on that user group. So, so I think a lot of it was that base of culture. And then as I brought on my team, they were taught to kind of um, – we kind of shine the light on the devs a lot because you know I had respect for what they were doing. And then when the sales guys came in, it changed the culture significantly. But because <laughs> because I teased the sales guys endlessly. Because they were guys. That was oh Smell of Axe body spray and desperation. And uh and this, and, and it started to become because sales guys all need um, attention, right? Oh, look at us, we made a sale. And the developers are like, yeah, we just like, you know, reconstructed the entire underlying framework, and we have redundant servers, and we spun hourly over these other servers. They're like, yeah, we made a sale, and they're like, oh. and that kind of tension. So I, I sort of put myself into that role of being the Rosetta Stone and helping people understand the tensions either way. Enterprise, you know, if you let the enterprise customers design the product, it's going to end up as, as the, what was the, the Mick Homer? What was the car on the Simpsons when he did his Edsel? But if you let the developers, because most of the developers, frankly, don't use the product, right? Um, so I would go in there and being a user, I would show them why people would want to do it this way. We were able to roll in and say, like, uh, Hootsuite saves companies, enterprise companies from embarrassing social media gaffes with new tool. And it was killer for business. And pull back and say, that's a relatively easy thing to add to the software. It's a popular little thing. But if you don't have that coordination between marketing and engineering, engineering would hear that and be like, no, no, we have all these other things that we've talked about six months ago. And you say, but if engineering understands that there's opportunity when there was the, where's the one, the disaster, disaster strikes, preparing for disaster slash opportunity. Um, <clears throat> This was this was a huge huge part of our growth to be able to move nimbly like that is because we were all in the same room and foster that that uh, uh, that time. The other thing I would say about that too is having interdisciplinary uh, task forces. So if you have a product thing that's like you know one product feature that's coming that's very specific, put together a team of whoever your coupon evangelist is, whoever that developer working on this thing is and a project manager or whatever and put them together in a little pod for a few weeks. And then by the you know, and, and, and you rearrange those pods enough, then everyone has that connective tissue. You can't that doesn't scale um, infinitely, but if you do it early days enough, then each of you as you're uh, a culture carrier as the company grows, you'll have that connectivity where you feel comfortable with like telling someone who's working for you or your mentor and like, oh yeah, you go over and talk to Bob, just give him some shit. And he'll, you know, if you have those barriers already broken down where anyone feels that they can go to any room in the co in the company, um, it's important. Well, we got a few dudes got knocked off at the end of the day. Yeah, 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 work and all that. <laughs> yeah. 
Don't forget, I'm a shareholder. I appreciate you doing your work. <laughs> Thank you for the two